0: Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. We're back with another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm joined today by John Ruffalo, the founder of Amrs Ventures and the co-founder of Council of Canadian Innovators. Thanks a lot, John, for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, George. So when we kind of talked before the podcast, I was very intrigued because I was looking at your profile, saw that you studied accounting, first of all, at Schulich, um, and then you sort of became partner at, at two you know, big accounting firms, one being Arthur Anderson and the other being Deloitte. Was that always what you intended, you know, in doing when you were in university,
1: kind of the accounting track? Um, Yeah, I I would say to you that at least at the time uh, when I was going to uh, high school and in university, uh, clearly was streamed that success correlated to uh, a role in professional services. So whether it meant accountant, lawyer, banker, uh, you know the irony is I was a banker beforehand, I was doing the accounting, but I ended up in tax law so uh uh all three combined, but it was clearly that uh I was subtly streamed uh uh into those areas. I know that your focus
0: while you were at these accounting firms was uh in tech media telecom were you always interested in you know in the tech sector and and this was um I would say kind of late 90s, early 2000s, so obviously during the, the huge uh, dot-com um, kind of bubble that was happening and, and boom. So did you know that you wanted to be a part of this movement that was happening
1: around you? Well, it, it, it really happened by accident. Um, so when I was at uh, Arthur Anderson, um, a few years in, I was uh, an international tax uh, expert. Uh, problem was uh, it was really in the depth of the uh, recession at the time uh, between 1991 and 1992. So despite being trained as a transactional uh, individual, uh, there was no real transactions to be done. And what I really wanted to do was understand uh, the decision-making process with entrepreneurs or with, you know, professional management. And I was seeking an industry where I actually had a fighting chance to uh, compete effectively. uh, And although, because I was in my early 20s, some of the industries like banking, etc., it was very, very difficult for me to kind of break through and have any credibility. But there was one industry where, my partners had no clue about and that was technology and the thing I liked about technology was that I had a few very interesting clients at the very beginning uh, which later were Microsoft and Oracle and that's what started to get me quite excited about the space. So starting in 1992, I built Arthur Anderson's technology business in Canada not knowing that three years later, it was about to explode. That's funny. So, so did you kind of, when you
0: say kind of three years later, not knowing it was going to explode, did you start seeing signs maybe a year uh, kind of before the 2000 mark? Or when did you start really seeing signs that
1: this thing was really going to blow up? Um, I didn't. So between 1992 and 1995, um, you know it was very difficult and uh i basically had zero to show for it but shortly after netscape was branded uh you know previously it was well the company was really the it was mosaic and mosaic named its browser netscape and all of a sudden that was uh, i think it was mid to late 1994 and the term surfing the web popped up. And that was what really was the trigger point for the explosion by 1995. And by the time 1995 hit, all of a sudden, the dollars start rolling in. And that was really the beginning of the dot-com wave. So the irony is many of my partners at the time were saying to me, wow, uh, look how lucky you are and how everything exploded. And I kind of looked at them saying, <laughs> you know, where were you for the three years when I was starving to death?
0: Yeah. B- building this practice when, you know, virtually there was, there was little or, or maybe no activity. Um, yeah, years before. And then, so then when you moved to Deloitte, I think it was around 2002, if I'm not mistaken, um, was it then that you really started seeing a lot of the momentum there? Cause you spent about eight years there. Um, so I'm assuming you worked with a lot of clients, but also a lot of ups and downs. Cause that was also through the recession. Um, so, you know, we also had kind of, if you want two use cases with, you know, Nortel and obviously Blackberry being ones that took a big hit. Um, what was your kind of association with this whole thing that was happening, you know, going through those ups and downs?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, from 1995 to about 2001, it was an unbelievable period. Uh, I probably spent about one quarter of my time in Silicon Valley and uh, uh three quarters, you know, in Canada and the rest of the world. Um, But it was an exciting time. It was unprecedented at the time. And the interesting thing is my clients were – not only the startups, uh, but it went from, you know, the two person in the garage startup to the VCs that supported them to the largest companies in the world. And from a Canadian perspective, my biggest clients were Rogers, BlackBerry, OpenText. And the interesting thing was it really gave me a taste of understanding the full end-to-end ecosystem. And so by the time... Uh, I joined Deloitte, and Deloitte, I joined it as a merger of Arthur Anderson. Uh, Arthur Anderson had uh, basically failed by virtue of the whole uh, Enron fiasco, Mm -hmm. and when I merged, um, I took over the leadership of the global technology media telecom tax practice, which which allowed me to combine all of the resources that I had, Uh, with Arthur Anderson, with all of the resources of Deloitte. And starting in 2002, even though the dot-com bubble had burst by then, it gave me an unprecedented unprecedented pedestal to really see uh, the technology business uh, from a global perspective.
0: Could you maybe remember one thing that happened within those eight years that really, really surprised you or maybe kind of left a mark with you the most as you look back?
1: Yes, you know what was uh the most interesting um from 2002 to 2010 when I left uh Deloitte uh, to join uh, O'Mers um the technology practice f- from an industry perspective at, at Deloitte was disproportionately the largest industry practice uh, in all of Deloitte for six or so of those eight years, despite the fact that it had a very small portion of GDP. And really what, what was most interesting to me was I started off my time there at the peak of the market when it just burst to the lowest end of the market, which probably hit about 2005. And you know, the real learning lesson for me is technology goes in these cycles and it's those that are able to not go necessarily just through the highs of highs, but going in through the lows and being there and to understand and see those cycles. It's given me insights today where I see cycles very, very clearly and I do believe, you know, We've run through another cycle again, and it really was that past history that's given me that that heightened sensitivity towards it. What sort of things did you see
0: then that you're now seeing, in, you know, in the current state um, that give you that kind of assurance that you know we might be obviously running out of the the peak cycle, maybe moving into recession? I think that's clearly the consensus. But you know, are, are there certain patterns that you see today that resemble what you saw, you know, 10, say ten years ago?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so when I had mentioned what really ignited the dot com um, stretch from 95 to about 2001, you have to look back and say, what was the technology breakthrough that gave rise to that cycle? And in my view, it really was the consumerization of the internet, largely through the, the, uh, the the Netscape browser. And what it did at the time, it gave people the access to the internet. For the next uh you know six to eight years, there was a promise at the time that you know by getting access to the internet, you can get what you want, when you want it, and how you want to consume it. But it never happened. So that promise was a failure. But the good news was, at least you had the access to the highway. When the cycle hit uh, and reverted, by 2008, we had the convergence of three massive technological uh, innovations. Mobility first, cloud computing became real, and social. Those three combined with such a force that by 2008, that promise that the internet was supposed to deliver actually came to fruition. And that launched the next cycle of innovation that we're in today. And uh, and again, it's not that things go bad necessarily, but they just go through its natural cycle uh, where entrepreneurs figure out how to best utilize those technologies, venture capitalists come in to fund those. They go through a natural cycle and then um, it goes through its natural downward trajectory and it will be reinvigorated again uh, when there is the next technology breakthrough cycle.
0: That's a really good interpretation. And even talking about cycles – I think what was interesting is you also recognized kind of coming out of the accounting stream as a partner with two big firms that you, you know, you were really looking to tap into the VC side. Why, you know, why did you sort of choose Omers as, as that sort of platform to launch uh, Omers Ventures? Uh, and if so, like, were you looking at other options? Were you looking at maybe starting your own fund? Just kind of walk me through your mindset at the time when you were looking to make that transition.
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah, so uh, when I was at Deloitte, um, I really enjoyed my time there and I had no intention to be leaving at that time. Um, but I would say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, by 2005, venture capital hit its horrible trough in Canada in particular, and it never was able to resurrect itself outside of that terrible trough. And you know, from a selfish perspective, what that really meant was uh the number of companies that I would be able to advise either directly or with my team uh, was going to be curtailed so i I started to get actively involved to try to help resurrect the capital allocated uh to to the technology sector. And started uh, really a public policy initiative and really to understand how I can help government. And that really became the beginning of my uh, you know, public policy hobby, which I still do to this day. And by 2008, through the financial crisis, this is when basically the pension funds and the financial services firms all decided – uh, they're going to get out of, uh, any sort of venture capital investing and probably not be back. And, uh, lo and behold, I was quite taken aback when I found out, uh, from Omer's that even though they abandoned the venture capital asset class as an investor in VC funds, they had a very strong interest in how to uh, fund uh, the technology companies. And so in 2010, they actually hired me as an advisor to help them solve this conundrum. Mm. And as I was going through the problem-solving front, it became quickly apparent that they didn't really have an interest in me advising them. They had an interest in me actually doing it. And when I queried and said, well, you know, I'm an advisor. I'm not actually the doer. Uh, The CEO of OMERS at the time had said to me, hey, you know what? You've been poking at us. You've been criticizing the pension funds in particular. If you think you're so bloody smart, why don't you come here and do it for yourself? And, you know, I felt shamed that I can't just point the finger. I might as well do. And that was really the driver of me giving up my career to try to solve the problem directly uh, with OMERS as the financial sponsor.
0: This kind of relates to a question I got from a friend, uh, Dan Shannon, from that LinkedIn post that we that we um, did together. But he basically was saying, look, like with the recent announcement of BCG with OTPP partnerships, I kind of wanted to hear you know, to, to sort of top on to what you were just saying um, your perspective on in-house venture development initiatives at pension funds? are we going to see more of those and if so like what is the, what is that impact going to have on on Canada's startup ecosystem?
1: Yeah so so you know one of my indirect objectives of joining Omers was I was hopeful that with Omers showing the leadership and all of the other pension funds thinking it was a bad asset class, um i was hoping that you know the team would would uh, generate great returns in order to incent uh other pension funds to rejoin the asset class and it's taken a while but um i have had a number of conversations with the largest pension funds in canada and i'm absolutely thrilled to say that every single one of them is paying very close attention to this asset class, whether it's the venture capital asset class or growth private equity. But, you know, frankly, it's now real estate and infrastructure as well, where they're realizing the disruptive impact of technology. And um, some of the pension funds will deal with it in a very direct manner, you know, in particular, OMERS and teachers. And a number of other ones will, will do it through, uh, investing in, uh, private funds. Either way, it really doesn't matter. Really depends on the strategy of the respective firms. But I could tell you there is 100% alignment for the first time in, you know, frankly, in eight years where I've seen all of the pension funds realize these are areas that they need to be in or they will miss the entire disruption wave. Well, t- talking about disruption, um, one,
0: of, you know, one of the things I really wanted to ask um, was, you know, from the portfolio of companies that you've personally dealt with, you know, through Omers, um whether it was 360 Insight, Shopify, Portfolio, Fusebill, like there's so many huge names, Hootsuite to name another uh, that I'm a big fan of as well. Um, you've definitely seen... Uh, I'm assuming sort of patterns of success, right? So this question is twofold. One, I'm kind of curious to see, like from the track record of of portfolio companies that you've had or dealt with, or you are a board member of, an advisor to, what kind of patterns did they have that set them apart from other Canadian tech companies? One. Two, from those selection of companies, because obviously Omer's invest in in sort of late stage growth cap, um, what you know, what sort of exit paths have have you seen kind of that were more successful because there is this narrative in Canada that, um, you know, Canadian tech companies do exit early, whether they go public or whether they do go through an M&A transaction, whereas the ones in the U.S. tend to hold off a little bit longer.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, l- let me answer your first question. You know, on the, you know, is there a single correlative thread amongst the companies that, that we had invested in, uh, that gives rise to the, the The greatest success, I would say the one thing uh, that's consistent is the passion of the founder or founding team in solving the particular problem uh, that's behind the creation of the business so if there is uh, a problem that's gnawing at them that no matter what they want to solve. Whether there is financial success or not um, uh, is the highest correlation to success because it's 100% of the time you're going to hit serious roadblocks. You're you're going to want to give up. You're not going to be able to see the financial riches at the end of the day, but there's one thing that allows you to pull through those toughest time, and that's solving the problem. You know, the greatest example is Shopify. When you hear Toby speak to, you know, his his desire for the artisans of the world or the small and medium-sized business owners to be able to sell online, you know, it was a mission of his and it still is a mission of his and he sees that as his problem that he always wants to solve. Um that was apparent with him on the first day I met him and still uh, is a key issue for him. That is absolutely critical in my view. And, um, you know, in, in answer to your, to your second question, the, the issue that was holding back a number of these folks was really their access to capital. And, you know, and this was part of the thesis um, that we had originally developed. It was a thesis around life cycle investing. If you could provide the requisite capital throughout the entire life cycle of a business so that they felt that they were not under pressure to sell early, that was a key to success. And in a number of the situations that, you know, we see from a financial perspective, I believe over the last eight years, while the access to capital uh, constraint, you know, is not perfect, it is largely eliminated uh, in Canada. And I can tell you, you know, the 10 years before, before this current decade, it was so horrible that any decent offer, you would have to do it. Because if you didn't take the offer, there wasn't any a, a sources of capital in order for you to execute on your strategy. So right now, I actually do not think it's an impediment, particularly for the technology industry.
0: Talking about environment, I kind of want to add to that point. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the recent article, uh, on LinkedIn, but uh, obviously this, this kind of topic has been shared around for, for probably the past year or so, uh, where they're saying Toronto becomes, you know, Silicon Valley 2.0. Some say, you know, Canada Tech is is itself kind of separate from that because we're building our own tech identity now. But, you know, Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of things being built here, whether it's the Uber Engineering Hub, the Alphabet Campus, the Intel Design Lab. You're seeing a lot of momentum here happening. Uh, I think I asked you this last time, but I do want to reiterate, what are your thoughts? Like, are you super optimistic with this one? And two, if so, I know that there is a bit of hesitation around the privacy you know kind of like what's happening on harborfront now with this whole you know google designing the infrastructure um what are your thoughts on on that innovation versus versus also breaching uh, of, of citizens privacy
1: so um i'll just your, your 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 first question um you know there's th- there's basically three m- macro policy levers on how to build a successful ecosystem of technology companies There's access to capital, access to talent, and then access to customers. On the first one, on the access to capital, I think that we have largely solved the problem. It's not perfect, but, but it's, it's unbelievably better than it's ever been. And so constraint number one is largely solved. Number two on the access to talent issue, uh, The quality of talent in this country is phenomenal, and I would put it up against any place in the entire world, including the Valley. The issue, though, is the volume of people that are highly qualified, number one. We just don't have the masses yet. And then number two, I would say if there's an area of improvement, it's operational execution in a scaling business. And it's not that they're not capable. We just haven't had a lot of scaling companies in order for a number of these uh, technology folks to have, you know tested their chops on. So you know over time, that will that will improve. So given the limited amount of resources, the greatest value to our economy really comes from using those resources to our Canadian-based indigenous companies. Now, there's a number of great foreign-based companies that operate in Canada, and I absolutely welcome them with uh, all the great value that they provide. But where I do get a little bit troubled is where we start to exploit a narrative that, uh, foreign companies should come here to utilize our talent uh, and take advantage of the cheap labor. Right. That's old-style thinking branch plant economy in the 20th century. And anyone who's using that narrative does not understand the IP economy and is using a 50-year-old post-World War II supply chain-based uh, economic narrative that has no bearing to the future, and I do get offended on that, but I do welcome foreign-based companies that come here that add value to the ecosystem. Where we have to also be mindful is is beyond the access to talent. I've said we need to ensure there's access to customers, and in that category of access to customers, this is where you get things like uh, you know procurement policies, whether it 's government or large corporate, but it 's also the ability to have freedom to operate and Where we need to be extremely mindful is not to get stuck into situations where we feed into platforms that might restrict the ability of canadian based innovation to be exploited to its full potential and and uh, being uh, succumbed to paying economic rents to platform owners. And it's an issue that's a concern come all around the world where uh, with the new IP-based economy, what you don't want to do is end up always paying some piper for access to IP or access to data. So Canada needs to really smarten up and really understand this is where the battle lines will be drawn. And the two countries in the world today that understand this concept best is the United States and China. And you're seeing this battle literally being drawn along the uh, artificial intelligence lines while Canada is sitting back playing a role of a body shop role largely. And that's not the right way to play. So, you know, we're getting uh, more educated on this, but this is really where the economic battles are going to be waged.
0: Where would you see, you know, the involvement of uh, our government? And I I don't want to get into this sort of nitty gritty, but I'm I'm just referring to what kind of structures do you see are working and and are there improvements to be made? Because I know sometimes, you know, uh, I know you're passionate about this topic as well, uh, that can kind of help further our sort of ecosystem. So, the question is really, you know, what sort of things are working currently, but what sort of things have to change so that we see more improvement based on the sort of gaps that that are currently uh, open? Yeah,
1: I mean, there, there, there there's a number of things that we can do from a policy perspective, but let me just kind of frame one thing. Um, yeah, And it's getting better, by the way. There are certain folks uh, in government that are really starting to understand that our economic future is predicated on – the ownership and access to intellectual property and data, as opposed to physical goods, um, but it's it's recognizing that the old notions of how we dealt with uh, uh, issues around trade regula- regulation, intellectual property management, understanding that it is a new world out there, and making sure that. Our Canadian-based indigenous companies are not hamstrung from what's going on from a global perspective, Uh, number one, so that they're at a minimum at a level playing field. But number two, what you are observing is that many countries around the world are getting nationalistic from an economic perspective because they see this is where the future is and, you know, you can quibble on, on how some of the countries are doing this, but, but to be proudly Canadian and to be supporting Canadian based companies, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should be waving our flag and not being embarrassed that, you know, the job of government here is to help create wealth for our future generations. And while they shouldn't be involved in selecting you know, uh, individual winners and losers because that's for the private sector, but they shouldn't get in the way for Canadian-based companies to be at a disadvantage either. So it's really recognizing those things that that are hamstringing the Canadian-based companies um, that I think uh, is really the the best path forward. And we did get
0: another question too, where you know someone was asking um, based on your sort of. You know, love for Canadian tech and really helping build this ecosystem. Do you ever have sites of building your own fund investing in Canadian tech? If so, if the answer is yes, maybe not sure. What would, you know, what industries are you really kind of, um, looking into now? Is there something that, that's really catching your eye, whether it's in the AI space, blockchain, whatever that maybe is there anything that, that if you were to start a fund, you would really look to, um, to back?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the area that I've, uh, that I was focused in the last few years while I was Omer's, and I'm just seeing the, the trend continue at an accelerated pace. While I'm very passionate of the technology industries and the tool sets that have been created over the last 10 years in particular, what I've really been seeing over the last couple of years is, you know, we've seen the rise of the technology company, but starting a few years ago, really started to see at scale, the rise of the disruptor. And now I know that's an overused term, but the disruptor is a traditional industry player that's now leveraging those technologies to make their products or services better, faster, cheaper, and gain more insights. And, you know, th- this is an interesting development in that we're now seeing uh, founding teams or founders who are experts in their traditional industry, whether it be things like financial services or healthcare, but, but they're savvy enough to recognize that they need to embed technology in their business in order to enable, uh, you know, their business model innovation to compete against the incumbents. I am seeing this happen. Um, greater now than I've ever seen. And it's quite exciting to see that the disruption is really happening but not generated necessarily by the technology community but now has transcended across uh, all industries. And every single industry, whether it's agriculture, mining, real estate, things that we never thought can be disrupted through technology. They are all up for grabs.
0: Maybe just on this topic as well, John. When you when you were at Omers and you were looking at all these different companies, and obviously I know I know tech is and to your point, disruption is being used so much now. But so is tech, and it's no longer an industry; it's more of a vertical in sub industries. Um, what was the thing like? What were the things that you you really looked for? And you mentioned obviously the, the passion from from the founders' perspective, but in late stage. Uh, investing you obviously want to you're looking at product market fit you're looking at position you're looking at uh, the founding team all these sorts of things on the flip side of that then what made you want to not invest in certain companies that you came across and what was that kind of pattern looking
1: like yeah so um i'll address your later stage more growth uh type of investing you know classically speaking um when you are investing in a uh, from a from a growth capital perspective whether it's late stage venture or it's growth private equity the point is you really should be past the point of product market fit and really in the scaling mode and scaling mode is really a financial accounting term And it simply means that your revenues are growing at a faster rate than your expenses, largely due to fixed costs. And that's really where you make the money. And and so in an ideal situation, uh, when you're investing in that uh, sector of the life cycle, you're really making not a technology bet or a product market fit bet you're making a bet whether the organization can effectively scale and in essence transform themselves from going from selling on a one-to-one basis to selling from one to many and then to transform to selling one to many on a global basis and and it's really assessing that capability and that, and 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 whether the organization uh, where uh, can move to the level where you know perhaps before a number of the employees were involved in day to day operations and you know they had small teams and now all of a sudden you have multiple time zones and you need multiple layers of management infrastructure and trying to find individuals who have done that before, that's really the challenge in investing in that space. And in Canada, you know, part of the disadvantage that we have is that we do not have the pool of talent that's in abundant supply, but neither do most countries in the world with really the exception of the United States. And so, um, this is an area where, as an investor, you have to be very, very thoughtful on how you could effectively scale the business or help this, the founding team effectively scale, but utilizing resources not just in Canada but around the world.
0: On this topic, now you're uh, the co-founder for the Council of, of Canadian Innovators. Um, you're bringing together basically you know, the, the high-level tech CEOs within Canada – what was the idea behind that? Like was that something you always planned to start or was that, you know, after Omers you figured that, you know, having some sort of a, a peer group and bringing together Canadian tech firms uh, that are looking to scale is a mission that that was still required?
1: Yeah, well, that was uh co-founded uh with Jim Balsillie and myself and really the very specific concern there was um, you know, our desire was how do we help very specifically Canadian-based scaling companies be successful and how do we leverage Canadian public policy in order to help them in the three categories of access to capital, access to talent, and access to customers. And the best way to think about this is if you are a large multinational, you likely have uh either internal resources or you might have engaged in an external uh lobbyist firms to help you influence that public policy in order to help you. But in the case of scale ups, um they don't have uh resources at their disposal at their disposal. Whether, you know, certainly internally and maybe externally, they can't afford it. So we thought we would create an organization where all of these organizations that qualify are able to share, uh, in these resources. So in effect, they have a share of internal resources across common problems that they want to help solve. So that was really the impetus, and now today, I think we started with about thirty companies—I can't recall or, or less than that—and today we're well over a hundred and ten companies in three wow. subsegments of technology, clean tech, and life sciences, and the demand is just getting further and further. And from a government perspective, I think they like this because. They don't have 110 companies coming at them. They're having one organization, and we're trying to funnel, you know, the ideas and really trying to work in partnership with government, not at them but with them.
0: Oh, That seems like a great initiative as well. Um, I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously, you, you've done very well, um, you know. Professionally speaking as well, like if you look at your, your experience going from accounting to co-founding Omer's Ventures mm-hmm. and now doing this, um, this initiative with, with, uh, Jim, what would you say was maybe your most proudest moment? If you look back at your career, I always love to, to, to know, you know, someone's tipping point, uh, like what Malcolm Gladwell talks about, right? There's always that one point, uh, in your life that, that something changes. You know, there, there could be a lot of things leading up to that, but there's always that one transition that you remember most. That really opened the gates. Uh, would you happen to have one?
1: Yeah, I would say the proudest thing for me is you know when you started off this conversation and asked me about you know my history and how I was streamed into professional services, that was mm-hmm. you know uh, built into my mind as the highest correlation of success. And today, you know, I, I love meeting. Uh, uh young folks whether they're still in uh, in university or they've left high school to build businesses but there is you know a new pendulum of success and it's at the intersection point of entrepreneurship and innovation and this is what makes me so optimistic for our future in Canada in that um these folks here want to create and build value, and you know looking back, I was never uh, streamed in order to do this and Now, when I look at my kids, I want them to follow uh, the same path that a lot of the kids today that I speak with, and I think it is the the path to the future prosperity of this country. And the whole notion of being an employee is going to change, you know, one generation from now, and and I right. think Canada is extremely well poised. And when I look back over my career, I, I really just can't believe how fundamentally it's changed.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a stat—I can't remember the exact percentage—but they're basically saying, you know, in the next five, ten years, most of the jobs, probably like sixty, seventy percent, will be uh, freelancers. You know, so. Uh, if you want to call it entrepreneurs, but someone with their own business who contracts at work, you know, it won't be, uh, with a larger corpse or, or so on. So to kind of your point, if you know, when you were saying like what, how you would advise either your kids or students that come talk to you, it's really that entrepreneurial track. If that's what I'm understanding from you, you know, if they're passionate about starting something, that's what you would encourage them to do. Interesting. I got one last question for you, John. Um, maybe there's a couple answers to this but um for people who don't know you kind of on the personal side i was wondering if you could kind of share like you know who, who's john Rufflow outside of uh outside of work and what we see you know obviously from a career perspective uh, and then the final one is um moving forward what what's the what's the one thing that you're really looking forward to still pursuing or tackling
1: um well you know i would say um you know People see a lot of the innovation and entrepreneurship of which I am extremely passionate about. Um, And I think, you know, that's really the pathway to prosperity. Uh, But what a number of people may not know, which I'm equally passionate about is I think prosperity without sustainability is a path to nowhere. So if you look at a lot of my extracurricular activities, I spend a lot of time in the environmental movement. I am the vice chair of the David Suzuki Foundation and involved with a number of other environmental and sustainable groups. And it's an area where, you know, I am deeply and deeply concerned uh, where we're headed. And, uh, you know, a lot of this success on the entrepreneurial or innovation front will be very, very hollow for me personally if we don't solve um the sustainability issue particularly for our kids or our grandkids i think uh politics have gotten in the way um and it's a real shame on how polarized the debate has become but there is no debate that we have a serious climate issue on our hands um And and perhaps we should only be debating on how to solve these issues. Uh, But unfortunately, we're just getting into the debate of politics on who's on the left or who's on the right. And it's deeply troubling me. And I, I really wish this is really the only issue that matters for all of us.
0: That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. I really, really appreciate it. I know everybody listening will get a ton of value from this. Um, and hopefully, you know, if you do start something in the near future, whether it be your fund, maybe a, a startup, who knows, uh, would we'll, love to have you back Con, and maybe talk about the next steps for you as well.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much, George.